You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 14th of November 2023 on Monaco Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Iran-backed Hezbollah has ramped up violence on the border between Lebanon and Israel, forcing thousands to flee. We'll ask if this makes a regional conflict more likely. A senior member of the Ukrainian Special Forces has been accused of involvement in the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We'll find out more about the investigation. Plus, Paul Rhodes is here with the papers. What's caught your eye? Good morning. We'll be discussing former Prime Minister David Cameron's appointment as the UK's Foreign Secretary and why keeping good news a secret is actually good for you. Excellent. We'll be back with you in a moment, Paul. And the attention of most of the international community is not on Sudan anymore. And so what you have is belligerents being able to do what they can without much oversight. International organisations have raised the alarm that another genocide may be underway in Darfur, as hundreds are killed by Arab militia in just two days. Judges in Italy may reach a verdict this week after a three-year trial of hundreds of members of the Mafia. We'll find out more about the notorious Ndrangheta. We'll have a roundup of business news and we'll end the programme with a report from this year's record-breaking Dubai Airshow. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The Israeli military shared video and photographs yesterday showing what it said were weapons stored by Hamas in the basement of a children's hospital in Gaza, where it also said hostages appear to have been held. Ethnic minority insurgent groups attacked security posts in Myanmar on Monday as fighting erupted on two new fronts and thousands of people crossed into neighbouring India seeking safety. And Nepal says it will ban China's TikTok, adding that social harmony and goodwill are being disturbed by misuse of the popular video app and that there is rising demand to control it. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, on October the 8th, a day after the devastating Hamas attack on Israel, violence flared along the UN-delineated border between Lebanon and Israel, known as the Blue Line. Since the end of the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah war, the area has been relatively quiet, but now there's escalating violence. At least 10 Lebanese civilians have been killed, including a Reuters journalist, as have two civilians in Israel. More than 25,000 people have left the border region. Well, I'm joined now from Tel Aviv by opinion editor at Politico Europe, Jamie Detmer. Jamie, many thanks for joining us on the show. There has been an upswing in violence on the Israel-Lebanon border since the weekend. Can you tell us what's going on? Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, the intensifications continue. I mean, we, we, we've been in this game for quite some time. The difference really of, of this exchange of, of fire, the difference really in the last few days has been both sides have been going deeper into each other's territory. Uh, there were some Hezbollah strikes on the suburbs of uh, Haifa uh, over the weekend. And the Israelis have gone about 40, 45 kilometers inside Lebanon with their strikes. 
the uh, Israeli one was targeting an air, um, an air defense uh, missile system of Hezbollah's. So, you know, the concern again is that this could slide, could drag into a war. I, at the beginning, a few weeks ago when we were talking, I thought it could slip uh, into a, a second front. I'm actually increasingly skeptical that it will. Uh, one reason because of the two speeches by Hezbollah leader Nasrallah, where he didn't call an all-out war for an all-out war. And he wasn't, you know, quite his passionate self in some ways, as we've seen on previous conflicts. I think what we are seeing from Hezbollah is the... Uh, the aim of trying to keep some uh, Israeli military units pinned down in the north and to keep them guessing. Uh, but Hezbollah leader did uh, blame the United States for supporting Israel's offensive in Gaza. They also warned that American interests would be targeted in any broader conflict. I wonder what, uh, what American military presence there is in the region at present. Well, yeah, we've already seen some of that happening, and that's part of what's what's called the axis of resistance. Uh, that's uh, Houthis firing off missiles. That's targeting U.S. garrisons uh, in Iraq and in Syria. And the Americans, as you know, have started responding to those attacks uh, as well. I think that's where we're going to see more of the emphasis. My reading, uh, and it's actually also the reading of a former Mossad director who I was talking to yesterday, Timur Prada, who knows a thing or two about Hezbollah, Iran and Hamas, he feels it won't break into a, a second front. Uh, his feeling is a little bit similar to mine, that in the end, Hezbollah is there to defend Iran, to act as a deterrence against Israel from Israel attacking Iran. And once you throw that card, it's no longer a deterrent. It's used. Um, his feeling, yes, was we would see a continuation of the various groups uh, of Iran-backed militants around the region carrying on, continuing to provoke, continuing to attack, uh, continuing to support Hamas. But he didn't think it would break into an all-out war. And Iran itself has no appetite to join this fight other than through its proxies? Um, no, I think uh, none at all. We haven't seen uh, uh, any actions from them apart from the proxies being used. And of course, we had the, uh, the leader of Iran in Riyadh over the weekend at the big Arab summit, uh, talking with uh, the Saudi leaders. Uh, I suspect the Saudis uh, want to calm things down. Iran seems to be quite keen to improve relations with Saudi Arabia as well. So I don't think there's going to be a push from Tehran to make this into a wider regional war. Look, saying that, there are huge opportunities for miscalculation by all players. Mm. And there are a lot of moving parts in this. And it can be a very small thing that can spark things to go completely out of control. But at the moment, the current trajectories, I think, will continue where we are at the moment. Mm. Uh, can we talk about the people being displaced? Are they being moved from both sides of the border? Oh, absolutely. The hotel I'm in in Tel Aviv here, uh, I'm the only non-evacuee. Uh, um, hotels in Tel Aviv are full of Israelis from the north, about 100,000 or so have been moved, possibly more actually now. Uh, in Jerusalem, of course, the hotels are full with evacuees from near the, Gaza, uh, near the Gaza border, and there are about twenty-five to 30,000 
Lebanese who have been uh, evacuated from uh, close to the Israeli border. And I wonder where they're going. I mean, when we look back and, uh, at the 2006 war, we know that more than a million people were displaced and, and Lebanon did manage to deal with that. But these 25,000, uh, I mean, Lebanon is in so much of a worse state now with a spiralling economy and no effective leadership. What happens to these people? Uh, a lot of them have gone to some of the towns further north. Um, they're being um, sheltered by various NGOs primarily, not so much the government. Um, they don't have enough mattresses. They don't have enough facilities. Uh, NGOs and charities are coping as best they can. Uh, they're being bedded down in schools and some government buildings. In the Druze area, the leader uh, of the Druze, Wallace John Blatt, in the Shoof Mountains, has been uh, organising... Uh, ready to prepare to accept a lot of evacuees from the south who would mainly be Sunni uh, and Christian and Shiite. Uh, but they haven't moved into those areas as yet. Other families go further north. They, you know, from the south will travel north often of uh, Beirut and stay with family members up there. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about the press because, of course, as we know, a month ago, a group of journalists were hit by two Israeli strikes and a Reuters journalist, Issam Abdallah, was actually killed. We understand that another large group of press members has been targeted by, by strikes in southern Lebanon. Do you have any details on that? Uh, slight injuries. Um, it was during an exchange of rocket fire between both sides. I'm very, very hesitant of using the word targeted. Um, if you're standing in an area where there's an exchange of rocket and artillery fire, there are high risks. I've been in that position myself many, many times in many, many wars. Until you've got evidence that the Israelis purposely targeted those journalists, and you can do that in various ways, but it will take some time to, you know, to investigate, I would be very careful about the word targeted. Mm. And finally, just being a member of the press there in Tel Aviv, as you say, surrounded by refugees from the border, I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about the atmosphere there. Uh, it's tense. Tel Aviv is tense. It's eased up a bit. I've been in Israel now for a couple of weeks. When I first came, uh, most of the restaurants were closed. There was very little traffic on the streets in Tel Aviv. Uh, each day, more things, more restaurants are opening. I mean, of course, one of the problems for businesses here, from hotels to restaurants, is a lot of their staff have been called up who who are uh, reservists. So it's hard to get the staff you need. Um, we get every evening in uh, Tel Aviv and sometimes in the morning, the siren is blazing and then the Iron Dome swings, it swings into action and you get, if it's at night time, a firework display of interceptions going on, normally around uh, over Tel Aviv, about uh, a dozen or so. Um, people are still in deep mourning about what happened on October the 7th uh, and still trying to get their heads around it. It was a national trauma. Um, most of the partisan politics is being pushed to the side, although it clearly Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, is incredibly unpopular at the moment. Poll, polls show about 82% of the population want him to quit sooner or later, uh, before the end of the war or after the war. Uh, I would have said it's, it's a city that's still struggling to come to terms with its grief, with its warning for October the 7th, and, you know, a deep concern uh, about the future of Israel and where it's going. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. That was Jamie Detmer from Politico in Tel Aviv. This is The Globalist.
12 minutes past nine in Kiev. That's 7.12 here in London. The Washington Post and the Spiegel have collaborated on an investigative report which says that a colonel in Ukraine's Special Operations Forces was integral to the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 pipelines in September last year. Three explosions caused massive leaks on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, which run from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Sea. The Post says the role of the officer Roman Chervinsky provides the most direct evidence to date, tying Ukraine's military and security leadership to the act of sabotage that spawned multiple criminal investigations and that US and Western officials have called a dangerous attack on Europe's energy infrastructure. Well, for more, I'm joined from Berlin. Lynn by Kaji Leek, who is a policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Kaji, good to speak to you again. Who is Roman Chervinsky? Roman Chervinsky is a Ukrainian military uh, who has currently adopted um, sort of, uh, anti, not anti-governmental, but uh, critical of the government positions uh, and, and speaking out. Well, frankly, um, it is hard for me to charge what to make of these claims. I wonder then if you could give us a timeline of events. Who is alleged to have known uh, and done what when? Well, the claim is that uh, sabotage of Nord Stream uh, 2 pipelines was conducted by Ukrainian uh, military services, military, uh, some of the intelligence services, without the knowledge of President Zelensky who probably has learned about it about the same time that, that we do. Uh, but yet again, I would, um, I would caution people about that story. It's based mostly on anonymous sources, and uh, we have some, seen some sensationalist, uh, sensationalism in Western media reporting about Nord Stream uh, before. So um, my personal instinct for now is to keep following the story, but not at least definitely not yet uh, take it at face value. So Chavinsky is currently under arrest, but for a completely different reason. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, he. Uh, that, is, that story is about uh, luring a Russian military pilot uh, to Ukrainian airfield. Uh, apparently, the aim was to uh, make the Russian pilot to uh, capitulate, to uh, to come over to Ukraine, but it uh, is said to have resulted in severe Russian bombing of Ukrainian airfield. Uh, now, um, that story is probably true, uh, or could be at least, but that is yet again fairly regular thing that happens at at war, you know, intelligence operations that end up miscalculated. Mm. Because, of course, Chavinsky has been involved in a number of other special operations. There was one in Belarus that he says failed because Zelensky's aides leaked the plan. He does seem to have a a personal axe to grind. He's made lots of allegations against close members of Zelensky's team. Just just tell us more about that. Um, Yet again, I... I'm slightly reluctant to go deep into that because that is um, that is a fairly regular thing about Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine showed its best when the war started. People came together and, and it was really amazingly creative. Uh, at other times, though, uh, Ukraine is an, an environment that is, that is hard to operate in 
um, you hear information that is that is hard to uh, hard to check, uh, and people there is all there are all sorts of of, of rumors coming from everyone about uh, everyone. Um, so what it tells to me is that the war effort going maybe less well than Ukrainians themselves also hoped. Uh, they were expecting a breakthrough over the summer that didn't happen. So that is sort of bringing back uh, the Ukraine we uh, we had at regular times, right? Be before the war brought the society together, and and the leads together in in that most amazing way, mm, because I mean, it, it is uh, it, it seems that there's some factional rivalry within Ukrainian intelligence, uh, and also that this this is about a, a, a sort of it's playing politics to to a degree. I would think so. I I, I would think so. I mean, is it possible that if the pipeline was blown up by a Ukrainian team, that Zelensky would have been kept out of the loop? Surely it would have had to have been cleared at the highest level. Yeah, well, that's, that's another good question. Um, I do not know. Uh, it, it is possible one way or other. And, and my um, biggest fear about that is exactly what Rhys... Um, stories are doing to intra-Ukrainian relations right now. Uh, it could be that they they get played in the way that uh, sows bad, uh, bad blood uh, between Ukrainian military and its leadership. And we have seen some, well, tensions or at least replacements there recently, which could be a sign of tensions and also counterproductive ones. Yet again, not being a military, hard for me to charge, um, but that is something that has ha been happening. Mm -hmm. I am less worried about Ukraine's relationship with Germany. If it, even if it turns out that Ukraine did it, um, I think by now Germany has moved beyond Nord Stream. I mean, uh, I guess many people in Berlin were relieved that it was gone. It was. It had become a burden, political burden for Germany uh, for an long time already uh, the relationship with that energy relationship with russia which was not no longer justified by political uh, good relations mm. uh, so i wouldn't expect that to affect um ukraine's relationship with western allies that much and also something to be kept in mind yes it was an act of sabotage but coming from ukraine against the russian pipeline it is a normal act of war, and Ukraine and Russia were at war at, at the time. That said, uh, there is a lot to the story that I'm reluctant to comment because to me it just doesn't add up. There is reports about the yacht being rented, being seen on the site. I, I've talked to people who know a bit about um, maritime vessels. They say this, this cannot be... Um, yacht of that type cannot potentially do that. So if it really was Ukraine, there needs to be more there, things that we don't yet know. Kadri, thank you very much indeed. That's Kadri Leek there. And this is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. 
We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin. It's 7.20 here in London and we're going to continue with the newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Paul Rhodes, Deputy Publishing Editor of Newsweek. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Georgina. So the man that was responsible for the biggest foreign policy disaster that this country has ever had, i.e. Brexit, uh, is now the Foreign Secretary. (laughs) Tell us more about David Cameron's return to government. Well, indeed, it is is the biggest shock of of um, recent times, as the New York Times put it, it must rank as one of the most remarkable comebacks in British political history. And and it, it's been well, it's been a week in the coming. Apparently, according to the Times, there was a quiet fireside chat at Number Ten with Rishi um, last Tuesday to um, to get this um, get the ball rolling on this one. And uh, and here he is back in to to everyone's surprise. And it was, it was surprising um, because uh, they don't haven't seen eye to eye on many issues. And recently, with um, uh, Cameron coming out and criticizing uh, Sunak's decision to axe um, part of the HS2 high-speed rail line out, out of London to um, parts of the north of England, and which, uh, but he said yesterday that they, he's part of the team, he's on board, and he fully supports his uh, prime minister. I mean, there are a n- number of areas that, that are troubling about this, <clears throat> excuse me, but uh, one of them is, of course, his stance on China, because he's been very close to, to the Chinese government, particularly to, to Xi himself. Uh, and of course, that's not Sunak's uh, and his, his, the, the last foreign secretary's uh, attitude at all. Oh, well, that, yeah, that is just one of the areas, most certainly. And yes, because, of course, Cameron was famously seen um, drinking pints with uh, Xi Jinping and um, hailing their um, relationship, um, you know, and as bringing it closer in this golden age of um, rapprochement. But, of course, so Sunak has said that, you know, China offers a particular threat uh, to our open and democratic way of life and are now, like many Western governments, quite a, you know, opposed and, and afraid of uh, what China could do. So that is certainly one area of policy where they are, have differing views. And how is he going to be received in Europe? After all, he was responsible for Brexit. Well, yeah, that was one of the... Let me go through my notes here. There was a delicious quote from... Um, um, in the in the Guardian, that it said he was he was uh, so dis- in European eyes he is so much discredited and no one will want to deal with him, but which of course they will have to. So it's <laughs> quite quite extraordinary. Well, it's nice to know then that British uh, politics isn't the only completely dysfunctional government in the world because you've got one too. Let's have a look at the US. Yes, uh, it's 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 um, well as, as they say it's deja vu all over again at the uh, in the House because they've kind of they have to come up with a deal um, to prevent um, a, a lockdown of the government by midnight on Friday, and and so far the proposal by the new House Speaker Mike Johnson is has not been well received by the the hard right of the Republican Party, who were the people that you know put him there in the first place and ousted. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who got his last funding deal 
through with the help of the Democrats, which is exactly what um, Mike Johnson looks like he's going to have to do. But I mean, where, where does this cycle end? Must there be some kind of uh, rule change? Well, I, I, they, I, well, one of the things that some of the um, hardline Republicans say, they want a longer um, spending deal and they want bigger cuts. And this current um, is, is just a continuation motion that will just continue on the spending as is until um, parts of it until the end of January and parts of it until um, February. So um, because of that, um, you have uh, Representative Scott Perry, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania and the leader of the Freedom Caucus, who said yesterday uh, that I will not support a status quo that fails to acknowledge fiscal irresponsibility and changes absolutely nothing while emboldening a do-nothing Senate and a fiscally illiterate president. So uh, there's a lot of there's, there's a big split. In, in the Republicans yeah. party. And of course, what's what's uh, what's interesting is that his bill, his funding bill, doesn't include any aid to Israel. No, that that is that is not part of this bill. And of course, uh, Biden had put through a proposal that binded um, Israeli aid with Ukraine aid, which was a big problem for many of the um, hard right um, Republicans who want to see the war in Ukraine defunded. So how long has he got? <laughs> and if he goes, who's next? Um, it'll be midnight Friday, but the the likelihood of the Republicans um, doing this again is, is unlikely um, because, I mean, well, they just look silly and you can't keep doing this, but also because Johnson is part of the more MAGA wing of the party. He's more to the right. He's very conservative on, on many issues. Um, he has said previously that the Bible is his worldview, so that will chime well with this hard right. So while he, he, he might have some battles ahead, he'll, he'll, he'll be in place to do them. Let's go to Iceland now and this uh, volcanic eruption. Yeah, it, it's, it's been uh, terrifying for many people in the town of Grindavik who were evacuated early on Saturday morning um, after uh, a number of earthquakes. And it looks like a volcano there could blow at any moment. But um, fortunately, uh, because we, uh, Newsweek, we did a story um, yesterday that many of the people had to leave so quickly that a lot of their pets and other animals were left behind. But uh, fortunately, a, a BBC report says that uh, many people were allowed back to gather belongings yesterday. And hopefully that included some of their, their, their pets and other animals to get them out of the area. Because the volcano hasn't actually exploded yet. The volcano hasn't actually exploded yet. But yesterday, there were 500 earthquakes in that hit um, the Reykjanes Peninsula. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, my Icelandic is not very good. Um, and so uh, it, it is one of these things that could blow over at any moment, but we just don't know when. And apparently the, the area had been dormant for 800 years before 2021, which, of course, was that, that very big eruption that completely um, messed up air traffic all over the world. I mean, yes. is that what we're looking at here? Well, um, the experts said this time that is unlikely. I think that it was partially because of the unknowns of the last cloud. But um, hopefully that won't happen again because it was highly disruptive for many yeah. people. Uh, and finally, well... As it's good news, perhaps you shouldn't tell me because that's what the article suggests. <laughs> this is this is a great article that I that I picked up from the Times uh, that it says a positive secrets can leave us feeling energized and invigorated, so we shouldn't 
maybe reveal them right away. And this was a study of Columbia University that found that three quarters of people um, instinctively wanted to tell someone straight away when they had good news. You know, and, and, and so many of us do taking to social media, you know, bragging about whatever happened to us. But um, but they recommended um, that we, 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 we don't tell anyone because if we do that, the positive news, we can spend more time savoring the information, reflecting on its meaning, and considering the possible joyful reactions of when we do eventually um, tell people. That's extraordinary. I just don't buy it. <laughs> well, it's, surely I, the, that's the whole point. You you share your news. You share the joy. I think they say to share it, but maybe just not right away. They did. They said that if people wanted to ring their partners with with the good news, say they got a promotion at work, and they want if if they couldn't get through to that person to tell them, then they were quite disappointed and frustrated. So maybe they should. They recommend you just sit on it and wait till you get home and and you're having supper together, and you think, oh, now is the perfect time to tell you, and you can you know, have the glow of that wonderful news and carry it with you all day. It sounds like a recipe for smugness to me. Paul, thank (laughs) you very much indeed. That's Paul Rhodes there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The Israeli military shared video and photographs yesterday showing what it said were weapons stored by Hamas in the basement of a children's hospital in Gaza, where it also said hostages appear to have been held. Hamas and hospital authorities there have denied that health facilities have been used in this way. Israel says it is allowing the evacuation of patients and civilians. Ethnic minority insurgent groups attacked security posts in Myanmar on Monday as fighting erupted on two new fronts and thousands of people crossed into neighbouring India seeking safety. The new combat will be another blow for a junta that's increasingly stretched as armed opposition to its rule grows in scale and strength, fuelled by anger over the 2021 coup. And Nepal says it will ban China's TikTok, adding that social harmony and goodwill are being disturbed by misuse of the popular video app, and there is rising demand to control it. Nepal's neighbour, India, banned TikTok along with dozens of other apps by Chinese developers in June 2020, saying they could compromise national security and integrity. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Between 2003 and 2008, at least 300,000 people were murdered in ethnically divided Darfur in the west of Sudan, and more than 2 million were displaced by Janjaweed, the Arab militia group. Now, the EU has warned of another genocide taking place there, as the RSF paramilitary group is accused of killing over 1,000 people in two days. The RSF has been battling the Sudanese armed forces for control of the country since fighting broke out in mid-April. Well, I'm joined now from New York by author and journalist Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Uh, Yasmin, many thanks for taking the time to speak to us, to update us on this important story. We know that there's been unrest in Sudan for, for decades. Can you remind us of the root causes? Certainly. So the situation in Darfur, even you know, even though it's um, just sort of coming up again now, goes all the way back to um, not only 2003 uh, with the the genocide, but back to Omar al Bashir, Omar al Bashir's dictatorship. So listeners might be aware that Omar al Bashir was the dictator that came into power in the late 80s, in 89. 
And his position was very much about divide and control. And so what he saw in the West in Darfur was resistance movements from what would be termed as non-Arab tribal groups. And what he then did was fund and arm Arab tribal groups to essentially, quote unquote, quell the resistance. And these these groups were called were, were known as the Janjaweeds, um, and uh, which essentially means translates to devils on horseback. And the Janjaweed were responsible for the for the genocide that we saw in the early 2000s. But what then happened was in sort of the 2013, Umar al-Bashir formalized the Janjaweed into what is now known as the RSF. So what we've been seeing over the past few years is this militia, the rapid support forces, essentially coming out of a genocidal group, being legitimized and formalized. And now what they're trying to do in the West is almost set up a parallel state because Hemeti, the leader of the RSF at the moment, has been, we have seen whether it's, you know, through his PR campaigns supported by you know, Western um, PR companies, whether it's his trying to meet with leaders internationally, whether it's appearances at international forums, it's all about how do his interest in legitimizing himself as a alternative leader to Sudan. And setting up a base in the West. Now, what the violence that we're seeing at the moment is unfortunately very, very um, ethnically driven. So this sort of position of Arab militia, Arab speaking militia, essentially massacring um, non-Arab tribes, so the Masalit and others, using using even like the language that people speak as an excuse to, to kill them. And the RSF at the moment, over the last couple of weeks, especially sort of over the November 3rd to 6th, we've seen the the south the east and the west now being taken over by the rsf and the last stronghold is is the north is al fashir now the important thing i want to say about al fashir the capital of north darfur is that in the early weeks of the war um, starting in april 15 the community leaders were able to come up with an agreement to essentially limit the amount of violence so they they sort of kept the rsf on one side in the east and the army on to the west but what we're seeing is now the RSF seeing this opportunity to gain control over all of that for they're really the violence is now also coming to Al Fashir. And we're talking about a region uh, almost the size of France, uh, most of Khartoum. Uh, and, and we know that the, the Sudanese armed forces do still hold some critical bases and sites in the capitals, but in the capital. But with the rebels taking so much territory, is there any semblance of normal governance? How is the country being run? I, th- I think there is no semblance of normal governance. And I think this is part of what's concerning people internationally, Sudanese activists, human rights watchers, and, and so on. Because, I mean, even, even just over the weekend, we saw one of the major bridges in, in the capital in Khartoum connecting two main parts of the city um, destroyed by the Sudanese armed forces. It's an, uh, well, nobody has claimed officially, but, but the word is it's about the destroyed by the Sudanese armed forces um, in a bid to stop the RSF, the militia, from getting resources into the country. So the focus really has been by these, um, by both the militia and the armed forces on the battle. And the humanitarian crisis is, I mean, I think it has been termed as one of the worst humanitarian crises of the moment. And I mean, the UN officials are saying that you know, it's verging on evil. We have 25 million people, almost half the population requiring humanitarian aid. We've got massive internally displaced um, populations. And so with this lack of governance and also with what, what's happening 
you know, in the region, of course, the attention of most international of most of the international community is not on Sudan anymore. And so what you have is is belligerents being able to do what they can without much oversight or without much intervention, actually, or interest from the rest of the international community. I think that's also something that people are worried about. Now, mm. some activists are pushing for a peacekeeping mission, are pushing for the United Nations Secretary General to authorize a peacekeeping mission, especially in Darfur, saying that let us avoid the same kinds of things happening that we saw 20 years ago. It's literally 20 years ago. We're seeing the same patterns. Um, mm. Let us try to get some more humanitarian aid. I think the number at the moment that's being asked for is 2.6 billion. Let us try to stave off, you know, some of the oncoming violence and instability, because this is not only just Sudan, but you take it over to Chad, you look across the Sahel, there's instability across the region. Um, whether or not these calls will be heeded is a different question. Yasmin, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. That's Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Italy's largest maxi trial in more than 30 years, involving hundreds of alleged members of the Ndrangheta, Italy's most powerful organised crime group, may draw to a close this week after a three-year hearing, as judges are expected to hand down prison sentences, which could total nearly 5,000 years. Alessia Cirantola is editorial director at Investigate Europe, and she joins us on the line now. Alessia, many thanks for coming on The Globalist. Can you tell us more about the Ndrangheta? and what they're accused of? Yes, Drangheta is uh, considered at the moment the largest and most important Italian uh, criminal group, more than Cosa Nostra, the mafia of Sicily. Uh, it's more internationalized. Uh, we see that Drangheta uh, uh, is operating uh, in countries all over the world, and especially it's uh, um, controlling the cocaine trafficking. Uh, in this case, for this trial that you just mentioned by the name of uh, Rinascita Scott, or in English, Rebirth Scott, that is run by prosecutor Nicola Gratteri, the allegations against the alleged Drangheta members that have been uh, arrested and affiliated is uh, they go from mafia association, uh, attempted murder, drug trafficking, uh, extortion, uh, loan sharking, uh, and uh, abuse of office, and also, of course, uh, money laundering. These are the main allegations against uh, these uh, Drangheta possible affiliated. And how come so many were arrested at the same time? Why is it such a big trial? So this operation was uh, massive, uh, considered that it happened uh, it was December 2019, uh, and uh, um, several un uh, hundreds of uh, uh, police forcemen, uh, they were raiding the houses of these people. At the same time, they started in early morning. Uh, that day was in, uh, December 19. Um, a special force of Carabinieri, which is uh, um, our one of the police forces in Italy, um, they uh, coordinated this operation that lasted hours to arrest all these uh, people. Um, and you can imagine uh, you know, having uh, uh, all these police forces reading the entire uh, city and uh, try to get all these people together for the trial. There's been a, a massive amount of uh, coordination and uh, a lot of time and preparation for, for that moment. And now some of the co-conspirators are well-known holders of public office. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Uh, so in this trial, uh, um, as uh, in 
in many other cases that happen with uh, Ndrangheta connected uh, operations, uh, um, we noticed that, that uh, Ndrangheta people are infiltrating uh, um, in, in institutions in Italy at all levels. So uh, we are speaking about political level, but also uh, person from the tax police, the Guardia di Finanza, that are accused of uh, being collaborating with uh, the mafia. So we see from this that they have control in all the main aspects of the life, uh, in um, not only in the area that they come from, but uh, all, all over Italy, and also from there, also abroad, with their uh, connections and their operations. So uh, these people arrested and the trial that is going on is showing how much Ndrangheta is controlling part of the country and from there also uh, situation and um, groups around the world. What are the logistics of trying so many people at once and how dangerous is it for the prosecutors, the judges and the witnesses? It is extremely dangerous. In fact, uh, the, um, the the bunker, the the room where this uh, um, trial is uh, taking place, uh, um, is um, is a courtroom uh, um, that uh, um, is a thirty five thousand square feet of uh, uh, of area of. Um, of an area where all these people, about 1,000 people, uh, can sit in, uh, in a safe distance. And um, just to remember, this trial started uh, during COVID. So at that time, they have also the issues of uh, uh, taking uh, enough distance from one each other. Um, so, and this is, uh, um, this is very dangerous, especially for the judges. Let's remember the, the main, uh, judges, uh, uh, Brigida Cavazino, um, and, uh, Claudia Caputo, uh, or Germana Radice. They are quite relatively young judges, all women. Um, they're born in the 80s, uh, 1980s, uh, and they have now to be, uh, locked. Uh, away outside the world and under protection to um, to be safe because uh, the sentence is arriving and the risk for them for their life and also for their relatives for people that are close to them is uh, getting higher and higher. So the protection level of also people who are judging them is uh, um, is at the maximum level. How is it possible to jail so many people safely so that they don't cause havoc within prisons? So the measures that are taken for um, security and for having them in uh, in these places are uh, again uh, um, massive, and it has been uh, coordinated with uh, uh, several police forces. So this is required uh, a massive also investment from uh, for the from the Italian state to have uh, uh, all the measures taken in order to not avoid basically consequences that are uh, worse than uh, what the, these people did when they were. Uh, operating free before the trial. Uh, and finally, Alessia, how significant is this sentencing? What does it mean for the future of the mafia? It's certainly an important uh, sentence. Uh, we have to remember that trials against Ndrangheta are uh, happening uh, all the time in Italy. This is uh, massive for the amount uh, the number of uh, people arrested. Uh, but we have to consider that this operation, the Rinascita Scott, is also putting together uh, previous investigations and operations from many other Ndrangheta um, 
operations. So it's a sort of a, um, the, the sentencing that will come out will draw a line. And uh, uh, I think it will pass to history as a moment in which we understand uh, better how much, how deeply Ndrangheta is infiltrated in the Italian institutions uh, and uh, uh, the and abroad with these affiliations. Alessia, thank you very much indeed. That was Alessia Cerantola, who is editorial director at Investigate Europe. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk business now with Rachel Papazzoni, who joins us on the line from Perth. Hello to you, Rachel. Hi, Georgina. I wanted to start with this story that you've actually written yourself, uh, which has a beautiful picture of sort of a, a big mine on, on the front. Uh, and uh, this is, you, you went off to the uh, Pilbara iron ore mining region and wrote this story about how iron ore is evolving and the demand for it is, is evolving. Uh, tell us more, because I, I see you start by telling us that uh, the, uh, the sector built its foundations on demand from Japan during the 1960s. Well, presumably that's all changed. It has all changed uh, at the turn of the century, about about the year 2000. Um, that demand really picked up from China as we saw, um, you know, the, the world's second largest economy really start its urbanisation and, and, I guess, development um, through much of the country. And so we've seen it, its demand pick up uh, much more than what we saw from Japan, which, as you said, started in the 1960s. In fact, last year, China has been our biggest customer now. And we're seeing the demand out of China really start to reach that structural peak. Uh, this demand is still very high. We exported 900 million tonnes of iron ore there last year, worth $124 billion to our economy. But as it reaches that peak, that demand obviously will start to wane. There's a lot of expectation that we'll see India pick up as our as our sort of next biggest customer uh, and the demand from there will grow. So Rio Tinto is the world's um, largest iron ore producer. It has 17 mines in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. And so I w- visited uh, one of their mines recently. They're hoping to ramp up production to uh, above 335 million tonnes this year. They have plans to open a new mine every year until the end of this decade, Georgina, just to meet what they see as that growing demand. That's extraordinary. What about other key producers? So BHP is the the next biggest iron ore producer in the region, and and it produced just over 250 million tonnes of iron ore. It agrees that China is is, the demand out of China is about to plateau, but it has different views on just how much of a customer base India will be. And the CEO of BHP, Mike Henry, said that they're actually focusing towards other commodities, uh, the sort of forward future facing commodities. He calls the megatrends of mining like nickel and copper. 
that are part of that electrification story. Though they're not pulling out of iron ore, they are hope to increase production through uh, improved productivity, but they don't have any new mines uh, sort of in, in plan. And then the third biggest producer here in Western Australia is a company called Fortescue, and they're really looking at the green element of this um, industry and really trying to decarbon and produce greener iron ore. So we're seeing this divergence, I guess, of where the focus may be uh, in, in the next sort of era of iron ore mining. Mm. Uh, I would like now to talk about a story we were reporting on yesterday, and this is about Australia's major port operator. Uh, There was a cyber attack. It's now back online. But uh, how disruptive was that? Yeah, so uh, that obviously lasted from Friday until Monday morning, our time, uh, where we saw the ports of Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Perth out of action. So anything coming in and anything going out uh, just couldn't happen because of that cyber attack. As you said, they're back online and managed to process 5,000 containers yesterday, but there's a huge backlog of more than 30,000 containers. And it's sort of unclear exactly what's in those containers. It's thought to be anything from sort of Christmas decorations to electrical goods, um, to food products. So the the sort of impact has been very widespread and the company at the centre of this DP World Australia says just because they're online again doesn't actually mean that the cyber threat is over and they're still actually trying to work out exactly what has happened. Uh, and it just sort of talks, I guess, to this increase in cyber attacks that are happening here and no doubt globally that we've seen over the last couple of years and how they can really cripple an entire um, sector. You know, we're an island nation. We're reliant on shipping in and out. Uh, and the the effects of, of this sort of delay of four days and the backlog clearing is likely to, to take some weeks to filter through. But the uh, Albanese government does have some plans in place to review cyber laws. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we, as I said, we've seen that sort of rise in attacks, but the government has announced plans to overhaul the cybersecurity laws, and we're expecting to hear an update on uh, changes to those rules next week. Uh, I, I guess key uh, among those will be the um, obligation for companies to report straight away. We we had a situation last year, for example, where Optus, one of our biggest telcos, didn't tell customers for four days that they'd been the subject of a cyber attack and a data breach. So I think that sort of instigated this uh, government review and government inquiry and, and, and changes that are likely to come uh, as a, and a, and a result of that. Mm. Uh, finally, let's look at um, EVs, electric vehicles, uh, because they're not doing as well as people thought they might. Yeah, well, of course, we've seen this, seen this big uptake over the last couple of years and um, uh, the resources that are required for that. For example, lithium, um, we're a big producer here in Western Australia. That goes into the batteries of these uh, electric vehicles. But uh, HSBC has, has sort of compiled some data and it reveals that uh, a lot of the um, countries sort of outside Australia, at least, are discounting EV um, sales. For example, in the UK, the average discount for October for a new EV was 11% off the recommended retail price. In the US, EVs are down 10%. Even Germany is cutting prices by about 7%. And this is really interesting because obviously that there's been so much talk about this demand for these new kind of vehicles, and it suggests that perhaps those early uptake customers have, have sort of peaked. And for those who, who are sort of waiting to see, I guess, um, we're sort of in that area now where um, these car producers are having to discount to just to keep those sales up. Uh, they do cost more than combustion engine vehicles. And this might be, I guess, the, the 
precursor to the the cost of those cars coming down and being more more readily available for more people. And is this also because of a price war with China? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, we've seen, I guess, the, you know, the, the, the production and demand out of China versus Europe um, versus the US and this tit for tat that's been going on in China, you know, the ability to produce many vehicles at much uh, more affordable prices than perhaps uh, European car makers. Uh, and when it comes to consumption, and particularly, you know, when we're all facing these higher cost of living issues, uh, if you can save money by buying a cheaper vehicle um, that's perhaps made in China, then consumers obviously are doing that uh, because every Everything is going up. And if you can find a, a cheaper deal somewhere, including with an electric vehicle, consumers are going to take up that opportunity. And that's what's showing up in these discounts that are now being passed on. And it's down to government subsidy, though, isn't it? I mean, China's government massively supports their EV industry. If we had that in the UK or indeed if there was more support in the US, those prices would come down better for the environment uh, and better for the market. Absolutely. And that's also uh, part of the conversation that's been happening here in Australia as well, Georgina. In fact, one of our um, state governments, Victoria, was charging um, an additional tax, a surcharge for people to have electric vehicles. And that's a huge disincentivization for people. Why would you, you know, buy a car that's going to cost you more to to first buy uh, and then, you know, more in taxes? So uh, the fact that China has been offering, I guess, these um, incentives uh, has obviously encourage that market and we're seeing that play out uh, in markets like what you're talking about in Europe but here in Australia where that demand just really has plateaued Mm. uh, it's hit that sort of natural peak I guess. Rachel thank you very much indeed that's Rachel Papazzoni speaking to us from Perth and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code RADIO10 to redeem this offer. Record-breaking Dubai air show is currently ongoing in the UAE. Gabriel Lee is Monocle's transport correspondent, and he joins me now for more. Gabriel, uh, good morning to you. Can you give us details of the massive orders that have been placed by Emirates? Right, yeah, the the big headline order came right at the beginning of the show. I think Emirates were keen to sort of get out ahead of everyone else and beat them to the punch on this and, and just placing this massive order worth about 52 billion US dollars at uh, at list prices. Of course, they, they were unlikely to have paid that much. Uh, but the big news is they're ordering many, many, many uh, big jets, especially from Boeing in this case. And uh, that's going to be great news for Boeing as well, because they've basically given a massive vote of confidence in the 777X, which is the sort of the, the, the aircraft that's going to be Boeing's flagship. It's been delayed several years. People have wondered whether this is going to actually be a successful aircraft. Uh, and and Emirates has said, yes, we'll take a lot of them for our future fleet plan. So it, it's big news for, for all involved. Mm. So, well, great news for Boeing. What about Airbus, though? 
Well, I think, you know, for now, Boeing has sort of stolen the show in terms of pure order numbers. But uh, from what we understand, it, it may come as soon as today that we see massive orders from other carriers in that region. And, and those are quite likely to go to Airbus, too. I don't think Airbus is particularly worried. Both manufacturers have have large backlogs. Um, and uh, there, there's word that Turkish Airlines may soon order hundreds, literally hundreds of jets, both smaller and larger from uh, from Airbus uh, in particular, and there'll no doubt be others as well. It's an interesting situation overall with airlines of that region trying to sort of, you know, essentially uh, secure slots for aircraft, which, you know, these these manufacturers, there's only two major manufacturers building these planes, and they can only build so many, right? So if all these airlines are looking at massive growth, shuttling people through that region, um, it's going to be intense competition for just, the, just getting aircraft on time. Mm. Well, and what do orders of this magnitude tell us about air travel in the Middle East and, and how fleets are expanding? I think it's interesting to look at. Uh, we see now that uh, Indian airlines are kind of on the rise, especially Air India, after it was taken over by Tata Group, and sort of they have a great plan for sort of becoming becoming a great carrier once again. Uh, that you know the, their their plans sound solid, and that and they've also fairly recently ordered huge numbers of aircraft to support this. And I think a lot of the Gulf carriers, as well as Turkish Airlines, kind of in the same in the same uh, grouping in a way. Uh, they see that you know they want to get out ahead of of this and and capture traffic and ensure future growth before India starts to sort of take some more of this traffic, which, you know, many, many Indians and many people going to and from India uh, travel through the Gulf right now because those airlines are, are the best airlines. The Indian airlines haven't quite been as good. But if Indian airlines get their act together, then all of a sudden you see this new front of competition for them. So it's kind of a, a cutthroat moment where you know, they're banking on growth that, that's, you know, 20 years down the line at this point. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a projection. They're hoping that this continues, but, but they have to get out ahead of it. Yeah. Uh, Gabriel, just quickly before we go, of course, we know that there's all this conflict in, in the Middle East. Uh, normally, there would have been Israeli arms manufacturers displaying at the air show. I understand they weren't, weren't to be seen this year. Right. The the stands are there, but no one is at them, is, is, is what we're hearing. So that's, of course, very interesting. Last The last time the Dubai Air Show was held was the, time, was the first time we saw the Israeli arms uh, manufacturers present. And that was a big deal, considering the recent, uh, you know, thawing of relations and now diplomatic ties. Um, so, so it says a lot about what's going on right now. It's not all a rosy picture, the conflict going on mm-hmm. right now. Uh, of course, has the potential to hit uh, all aspects of aviation, including passenger numbers. So uh, it's it's a, it's an interesting one to see. Gabriel, thank you very much indeed. And that's all we have time for on today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer, Isabella Jewell and Monica Lillis. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and then the briefing will be live at midday in London. We've got lots of great music for you to come to and lots of sharp programming. Uh, I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll return on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.